number 11. You guys want to get there in just a second? Can you guys hear me with the mic down like that? No. No? No. no? Psalm 115, 1 through 11. Now to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you for all the gifts you've given. We thank you for the beautiful weather we've had this week. Um, we're thankful for the pastors you've given us. We pray for Andrew as he brings a message today, Lord. But we also pray for our community. We pray for the ministries that we have. But Lord, first and foremost, we pray that we would glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Those verses that Bill just read, uh, some of the scariest verses in all the scriptures, I think, are verse 8, where it says, those who make them become like them, uh, so do all who trust in them. Uh, idolatry is uh, very much alive, and it's not just the golden or brazen or wooden uh, idols that we think of that maybe you would find somewhere in South Africa or in India or South America. Uh, but idols are anything within our heart that we cherish and trust more than God. It's when we take the good things of God and make them the great things. And Scripture warns us uh, that those who worship and bow down to such idols, uh, you become like them. If you trust in them, you become like them. That's quite the verse. <clears throat> so this morning, our subject at hand as we wrap up our series on beholding you guys are looking for that mic, it's over there later. Uh, but the subject this morning is that God is sovereign. He is sovereign. His sovereignty is revealed quite literally on every page of Scripture. You can't miss it. As, as you read through the Scriptures, as you turn each page, as you go through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, the Bible is teaching again and again and again, God is Sovereign. This is the bedrock truth of Christianity. Uh, and when I uh, first uh, came to study and understand this, I can't even begin to express how much the sovereignty of God and un an understanding of that and appreciation of that, I mean, it transformed my life. Because we know, because I know that God is sovereign, it fills my life with joy. 
a joy that no one can take. And it fills my life with confidence and with peace and hope. The sovereignty of God is this bedrock truth that is life-transforming. Honestly, it's, it's the truth uh, that makes me, more than anything else, want to behold him, as we've been talking about. It's a truth that, like no other doctrine for me personally, uh, that causes me to worship him. Our God is sovereign. And you may be wondering, well, if, it's, if, that's, if that's such a, an important truth in Scripture, if it's the bedrock truth of Christianity, what's taking you so long to, to get talking about this, Pastor Andrew? <laughs> That's a, that's a fair question. It hasn't been easy. And the answer is actually quite simple. The answer is because I think the sovereignty of God takes all those other attributes of God that we've talked about and kind of wraps them together. And I hope as we've been going through each one of those different attributes of God that what you're thinking in your mind is a God like that, that's a sovereign God. And a God like that deserves to be seated on the throne. That's, that's the idea, that it's all been pushing towards this, uh, coming towards this, uh, that we would all sense and think and feel uh, deeply within our hearts that because God is unchanging, because God is from himself, that because God is without limit and knows all things and, and all those other attributes of his, that because that is true, that deep within your heart you would say, God is imminently qualified to rule. He is sovereign. What does it mean when we say that God is sovereign? What do the scriptures mean uh, when it says that God is sovereign? Well, sovereignty means exactly uh, what verse 3 says in Psalm 115, uh, where we read, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's the sovereignty of God. That he does all that he pleases. God rules and plans and carries out his perfect will without failure. Without failure. He's not a wooden or metal idol that's described there in those verses. No, God is the living, glorious, sovereign God who accomplishes all that he pleases. Uh, turn with me uh, to Psalm 135. Verse 6, and you'll find a great parallel verse. Psalm 135, verse 6. And there we find, again, a very similar verse to ours in Psalm 115, verse 3. But Psalm 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. Where does he do that? In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deep. So ask yourself the question, how, how wide is the scope of God's sovereignty? How wide is it? How great is it? And what does Psalm 135 verse 6 answer? It answers, in heaven and on earth, right? That's how wide is the scope of his sovereignty 
And you might ask, well, how thorough is his control? And it says in both Psalm 115 and 135, he does whatever he pleases. That's how thorough his sovereignty is. There's no qualification. It doesn't say he does whatever he pleases, except for when those stubborn humans get in the way. No, he does what he pleases. God plans and carries out his perfect will as he alone knows is best, and he does this over all heaven and earth, and he does so without failure. He does so without defeat. Sovereignty is God's right to do as he pleases, always as he pleases, and only as he pleases. God is in control of all things, people, and places. He is directing all things after the counsel of his will and to his glory. Like I said in Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to what? To your name give glory. So if I can say this another way, the sovereignty of God is this. God has the right and the freedom to do whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases, however he pleases, in respect to whomever he pleases. And whatever God pleases to do is in harmony with the rest of his character as revealed within the scriptures. I love this truth. God is presiding over all the affairs of the universe. His sovereignty extends over all peoples and places, events, and outcomes. And so Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His kingdom rules over all. Psalm chapter 93 verse 1 says, The Lord reigns. That's present tense. Not he used to reign or he will reign. The Lord reigns. Amen? He reigns. God is presently exercising his will every moment of every day. Uh, One person put it this way, that God the Father reigns in times of prosperity and disaster, in seasons of plenty and famine, in life and in death. There are no boundaries on his jurisdictions. There is no statute of limitations on his reign. He was never put into office by the votes of creatures. He will never be impeached. Heaven and earth are not run by a democracy, but by a theocracy, not by a majority vote, but by the choice of one. Our God reigns. He's in the heavens, and he reigns. He is sovereign over creation. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God did not have to create anything, but it pleased him to do so, and so he did. God sovereignly decided how he would create in six days by the word of his power. And he sovereignly decided what he would create, the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And he determined why he would create, Romans 1.20, to reveal his power and his wisdom and his majesty. He did all of this for his glory. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 uh, 
the, the saints, the angels are crying out to God, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why is he worthy to receive glory and honor and power? Because they sing, they cry out, you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Another way to translate by your will is for your pleasure. For your pleasure, by your will, they existed and were created. And as you read through the scriptures, you see example after example after example of how God is sovereign over creation. Obviously, we see it in Genesis 1. Uh, we also see it in just a few verses or chapters after Genesis 1 where God causes a worldwide flood. That's sovereignty over the water. He splits the Red Sea. Uh, he commands the fish to swallow Jonah and later to spit him out, right? Uh, for Daniel, he shuts the mouths of the lions. Then you also have examples where for Joshua, he makes the sun stand still in the sky, for Ahaz, he sets the sun backwards 10 degrees. Remember that? God is sovereign. God is sovereign over creation. He, he made the ravens to carry food to Elijah. I'm personally not sure I'd want to eat that food, uh, but Elijah was hungry. He was desperate. Uh, God is sovereign. He directs the rooster to crow just when he said it would with Peter. And of course, Christ himself shows his sovereignty over creation as he commands the waves and the seas, as he commands the unclean spirits to go into the pigs. Remember that? God is sovereign over creation. One of my favorite verses for God's sovereignty, it blows my mind. You ever see on the news, they don't do this so much anymore, it doesn't seem like, but they sometimes will show all the lightning strikes. You ever see that? Yeah. You know the scriptures say that God directs every lightning strike? Amen. Job chapter 36, verse 32. And this is just one. There's actually a few that say it, but Job 36, verse 32 says about God, he covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. That's the time for worship. If you're ever watching the news and they show that a severe thunderstorm rolls through and they show all the lightning strikes, that's the time to worship. And praise God. Psalm 104, verse 14. Whenever you're out there mowing your yard and angry about it and frustrated about it, think about this verse. Psalm 104, verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Who makes the grass grow? God does. God does. Or Amos chapter 4, verse 7, where God says to Israel, I withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. God is sovereign over creation. He is sovereign over the nations. He is sovereign over the United States of America and every other nation and country and government in this world that has ever existed, currently exists, or will ever exist. It was just a week or two ago where Republican Greg Stubbe said in opposition to the Equality Act 
The gender confusion that exists in our culture today is a clear rejection of God's good design. And he went on to say, quote, that whenever a nation's laws no longer reflect the standards of God, that nation is in rebellion against him and will inevitably bear the consequences. The response to that from Democrat Jerry Nadler, he pushed back saying, maybe you heard this, Mr. Stube, what any religious tradition describes as God's will is of no concern in this Congress. He couldn't be more wrong. God's will is the only concern. And the Bible makes plain that every government is put in its place by God and will be judged by God. God's will is all that matters. And so Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you from above. And in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, we read, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God also tells Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 that wisdom and might belong to me. I change the times and seasons. I remove and I set up kings. And Nebuchadnezzar learns that the hard way, doesn't he? King Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man on the face of the planet, During that day, one day he walks out on the rooftop of his palace. They had flat roofs, not angled roofs. So he's out walking on the top of his palace. He's looking around his kingdom, and he thinks, man, this is a pretty impressive place I built. And he thinks it reflects his glory and his strength. And before he even finishes getting the words off his mouth, a word from heaven comes. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat like grass, like an ox, and seven periods, which I understand to be seven years of time, shall pass over you, and that will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. Those are staggering verses. God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar, I gave you everything. Every brick, all of it comes from me. I enabled that. I empowered that. And so he humbles Nebuchadnezzar. He humbles him uh, to live like an animal for seven years. And those seven years pass. And at the end of those seven years, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, it's interesting in Daniel 4, you actually have uh, Nebuchadnezzar speaking uh, where he says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I love that verse. Why is our world so insane? Because they haven't lifted their eyes to heaven. They're trying to live as if God doesn't exist and we're going crazy. Nebuchadnezzar is a great example. He says, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. (laughs) And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Listen to what he says. God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? You can't say that to God. 
Let's not miss this. Nebuchadnezzar is saying that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion that contrasts with his own. He maybe was 50, 60 years at best. At best, we have this little tiny piece of of, of land and time that's called our life to reign and live and rule. But God's reign is everlasting. And God's reign isn't just these few acres, but it's, it's the whole earth, the whole universe. He rules over it all. And so God is saying, no matter who gets elected to Congress or the Senate or the president or mayor or anything else, it doesn't matter. God is king. He is king. He's also sovereign in the small things. Not only is he sovereign over creation and the nations, he is sovereign in the small things. We, we referenced this verse last week, Matthew uh, chapter 10 and verse 29. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, we are told that a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. A sparrow. It doesn't fall unless it's part of God's will. Matthew 10, 29. Then after that, you're told, he's even numbered all the hairs on your head. That's sovereignty. In Matthew chapter 6, those rhetorical questions are asked, who clothes the grass? Who counts and controls the birds? Who feeds the birds? And the implied answer is, of course, God. He clothes the grass. Psalm 104, he makes the grass to grow. Matthew 10, 29, no bird falls apart from his will. He's sovereign in the big and the small. Not only that, he's sovereign in our daily lives. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, the heart of man plans his way. You know, we have our plans. It's good to make plans. It's important to make plans. As a church, we have our ministry action plan, right, which is wrapping up this year. We need to create a new ministry action plan for the next three years. It's good to have plans, important to have plans, but we make those plans in humble submission to God who does all things well. Because Proverbs 16.9 says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so if we make these plans and God changes them, our response to that isn't like, why? Our response is, thank you, Lord, because you know all, and we humbly submit to you. Or how about James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, where it says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll spend a year there and trade and make a profit, but you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, you ought to say, if the Lord, what? Wills. We will live and do this or that. There it is, right? God is so sovereign. But as we make our plans, again, it's good to make plans. But as you make those plans, our mindset, our heartfelt attitude is, if the Lord wills, we will do this. If the Lord, if it pleases him, we will do this. God is sovereign. If, if you learn to plan your life that way, plan your days that way, your weeks that way, your month that way, it will give you so much peace and confidence and strength. If the Lord wills. He's also sovereign over evil. He is not the author of evil. 
Evil does not originate with him, but he is sovereign over evil. How do I show that to you? Think about the life of Joseph. Joseph endured some pretty awful things. His brothers try and kill him. His brothers throw him into slavery. We flash forward a number of years and Joseph comes to the end of his life and uh, somewhat near the end of his life and his father has died and his brothers are very, very worried that now that dad has died, Joseph's going to get his vengeance. What does Joseph say to his brothers? In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, he says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. You hear that? Evil. His brothers meant evil evil against him. You meant evil against me, but God, what? Meant it for good. What was the good? To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's response to the evil of his brothers is to see a God who is sovereign over that evil and can turn those evil actions for God's good purposes. You see it even more with the crucifixion of Christ. Never was there a gathering of evil such as the days when they sought to crucify our Lord. You have Herod and Pilate and many of the Jewish leaders, the religious Jewish leaders, uh, gathering against Christ and, of course, Satan and Judas. They all combined together with their evil to put Christ on the cross. And yet what does Scripture say in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, it was, it was unmistakable to see that Christ was the Messiah. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see? Is there anything more sinful or evil or wicked than when we took the Lord's, the Father's Son, our Savior, and nailed him to that cross? Is it getting any more wicked than that? And the scriptures clearly teach that happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In eternity past, God had ordained that Christ would be the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all, and that is exactly what happened. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin and Judas and Satan and all the other forces of evil that combined on that day, they did exactly what God predestined would take place. Because predestination always keeps perfect time. And what God did is he took that most sinful, awful, evil act and turned it for good. Because God is sovereign over evil. He turns the devices and purposes of Satan and turns them for his purposes and his will and his pleasure. 
It is now through Christ and his death on the cross that salvation from sin and eternal life comes to every tribe and tongue and nation. If God can bring blessings out of the crucifixion of his son, how much more can he in his sovereignty bring good out of the evil that happens in our lives? And also because this is true, if God wasn't sovereign over evil, then the book of Revelation makes no sense. Right? If God wasn't sovereign over evil, what hope do we possibly have? We would have no hope. No hope at all. There is a day coming when God will cast uh, Satan and sin and, and his followers into the fires of hell and, and he will have the victory forever. That's our God. That's our Savior. Our God is also sovereign in salvation. He's not just sovereign over evil. He is sovereign in salvation. God could send every one of us to hell and still be just. We forget that all the time. I, I'm prone to forget that, that God doesn't have to save anyone. But praise him, praise him. He has willed to save. He has willed to save by grace through faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why when we get saved, I don't say, man, thanks, Andrew, for saving yourself. Right? We say, thank you, God. Because salvation belongs to him. And when we pray for others to be saved, we don't pray to them to save themselves. We don't pray to other people to save them. We pray to God that he would sovereignly intervene and show them their sin and bring them to repentance in his name. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his sovereign work. If you wrestle with that and struggle with that, I encourage you to go to Romans chapter 9. And just camp there. Set up your tent there. Camp there as long as you need to camp there until you can say, God has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he hardens whomever he will harden. In Romans chapter 9, we learn that God chooses to save whom he chooses to save without regard to merit without regard to riches, without regard to talents, but only with regard to his pleasure. His pleasure. Spurgeon puts this quite powerfully. He writes, when I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me you can resonate with that, right? That, I mean, that's how I uh, think and, and felt uh, when I first came to faith in Christ. And so he even says, I, I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. So Spurgeon goes on to say, one weeknight, the thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? Well, I sought the Lord, he said. But how did you come to seek the Lord? You know, he keeps asking these questions. How, how did you come to seek the Lord? And the truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed that, I thought, but then I asked myself, how did I come to pray? 
And he writes, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. And so he asks the question, how, how then did I come to read the scriptures? I, I did read them, but what led me to read them? And in a moment, he says, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that he's the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I've not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Search yourself this morning. Why do you believe this morning? Why do you believe the scriptures? Why do you pray? Just keep working backwards like, like Spurgeon did. And in the end, I think what you'll see is exactly what he said. God is the first mover. I ascribe my change wholly to God. He is sovereign in salvation. And I think from all that we have said, we can say he is sovereign over everything. Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 11 says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, how much? All things after the counsel of whose will? His will. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Or how about Romans chapter 11, verse 36, that says, For from him, and through him, and to him, are what? All things. To him be glory forever. You see, there are no limits to God's rule, no limits to his sovereignty. God is not idly watching the affairs of human lives, helpless, without any control over the outcomes and destinies. Instead, God is actively administering the affairs of providence every moment of every day. He is in complete charge of my life and the life of every person who is living. Nothing lies outside of his jurisdiction. He is never helpless. He is never frustrated. He is never surprised. Nothing ever happens by random chance there is no such thing as luck that word needs to be eliminated from our vocabulary Amen. and I said that once up in Newberry and someone came up to me after and said after and asked well if I don't call it luck what do I call it I said you thank God you call it thankfulness because it all comes from him we're not determined by the stars they don't command our destiny God commands our destiny, and we give thanks to him. So what difference does that make in our lives? I, I hope the scriptures have persuaded and convinced and done a deep work in your heart to see the exhaustiveness, the meticulousness of his sovereignty. But the question before us then is, if he's sovereign, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? And quite frankly, I would need a whole other sermon to really flesh this out. <laughs> if you want to stay, I'll do that. Uh, what I have are bullet points. A few bullet points to think about. I'll just make a few comments on each one of them. And what I encourage you to do as a family is talk about these. As, as you gather in your growth groups, I hope you're all a part of a growth group. As you gather in one, talk through these things. Think through these things. Uh, but here, here we go. I'm going to hit them quick. Some quicker than others. But I think the first implication of the sovereignty of God is we need to surrender. We need to surrender. There is much about sovereignty, God's sovereignty, that I don't understand. Regardless of the fact, what everyone needs to do is, is submit, surrender to God's sovereignty. 
That's the lesson that Job learned in, in Job chapter 40. Basically, God says to him, who are, who are you? Who, who dares challenge and question me? And Job says, I put my hand over my mouth. Right? What did he do? He surrendered. Who am I? I got nothing. Do I believe in God's sovereignty because I can explain it? Do I believe in God's sovereignty because in my mind there's no mystery? Of course not. There's a lot to it I don't get. I believe it because it's what the scriptures clearly teach from beginning to end. When Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's sovereignty. And Jesus is a powerful example to us in this regard. Just hours before his painful, brutal crucifixion on the cross, he cries out to his father, Father, if you are willing, please remove this cup from me. But then what does he say? The most awesome phrase of surrender and humility you'll find in Scripture, not my will, but your will be done. He surrenders. That should be the heartbeat of every one of us in this room. Not my will, but your will be done. Don't fight God's sovereignty. Don't argue with his sovereignty. You're going to lose. You're going to lose. Instead, surrender. You have questions about God's sovereignty? Then take them to God's word, but there's mystery. The, the secret things are, are, are belong to him. They don't belong to us. Put the hand over your mouth and surrender. Yet not my will, but your will be done, O oh God. Surrender. I think there's also comfort here. The universe is wildly out of your control. <laughs> wildly out of my control. I have no final control over my, my death or the attitude that other people have towards me, relationships, the economy, the government. I mean, that list goes on and on. I have no ultimate final control over any of those things. When I do try and control those things, I am miserable. So are you, right? You're filled with anxiety and worry and depression but if you rest your head on the sovereignty of God's pillow, you will find your heart to be filled with comfort and peace. Because you will understand that as wildly out of control as things are, they are not out of control. As wildly as they're out of your control, they are not out of control. And you can find great comfort there. There is no attribute more comforting to a child of God than this truth, my God reigns. In the most severe trials, God is not asleep. We can trust that God has a purpose. I don't know if I've shared this story with you before, but I, I used to work at a small uh, local uh, mart. Uh, it was called Stangi's Market. Was, that was the guy's last name. Uh, a Indian family bought it out. I got to have a pretty good friendship with them, relationship with them. I was able to share the gospel with them a great deal. I don't know if they ever came to faith in Christ. We moved away to the UP. Uh, but one day when we were at his house, uh, <clears throat> I hear this. We're visiting, having, having supper together as a family. And I hear in the background this bell tinkling. And I asked, he went by the name Harry. It wasn't really his name. That was his American name. Uh, people trip over his Indian name. So he said, call me Harry. So I called him Harry. Uh, I said, Harry... What is that? What's that tinkling sound? 
and he said it was his dad uh, bowing before an Indian temple in their house, it's just a little temple that they had built, and they rang that bell, and I'm not lying, he said this, to wake God up. <clears throat> and I was able to kind of talk with him a little bit about the one true God. He doesn't need to wake up. <clears throat> God is never asleep. God never makes a mistake. In our darkest valleys, we have this foundational truth. God is at work for his glory and for your good. Because God is sovereign, please hear this. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Nothing at all. God is greater than all things. And he's in absolute control of all things. Even Satan can't rip you away from the love of God. You have nothing to fear. This is where we get rich, deep comfort. Not because we totally understand God's sovereignty, that, that, that's impossible, but, but we know that God is greater than our sins. He's greater than our failures. He's greater than our greatest weaknesses. He's greater than that temptation. Uh, he's greater than a disease or a sickness. He's greater than everything in creation. He'll never let us go. Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am confident that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have nothing to fear. Every reason to have comforts. Every reason to be joyful. I can say so much more about each one of these. Uh, joyful though, Psalm 97 verse 1 I quoted that earlier. I didn't read the next part. It says, the Lord reigns. The next part is, let the earth rejoice. Rejoice. God is sovereign. He reigns. What should our reaction be? Pure joy. Exaltation in him. Let, let, let me say it this way. Joy is impossible. I think this is true. Joy, true joy is impossible unless God is sovereign. Think about all those verses that command us to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Those, those are imperative moods. Those are commands. That, that makes no sense. It makes no sense to rejoice unless God is sovereign, unless God reigns. Because he is sovereign, we can be thankful. Spurgeon, again, Spurgeon said, cheer up, Christian. Things are not left to chance. No blind fate rules the world. God has purposes. Those purposes are fulfilled. God has, God has plans. Those plans are wise and never can be dislocated. Cheer up, Christian. God is sovereign. And also, Christian, because God is sovereign, you should pray hard. And you should evangelize hard. And you should strive with all of your might to be holy and godly. People often flip this around. They say, well, if God's sovereign, as he can do what he wants to do, then why pray? No, it's the other way around. Because God is sovereign, pray. If he wasn't sovereign, why would you ever pray to him? <laughs> but he is. So pray. 
And he's, again, he's sovereign over salvation. So evangelize, make disciples because he's sovereign, because he's powerful. Make disciples with confidence and boldness in God and his sovereignty. There's no room for fatalism. Fatalism says, Kesera, Kesera, right? What will be, what will be? Or the idea that, well, God's going to do what he's going to do, so why bother? That's fatalism. That's nowhere in the Bible. The Bible repudiates that kind of thinking. The Bible says, because God is sovereign, get busy. Because he is sovereign, work hard, strive with all of your might to do what he calls you to do. Make plans, pray, evangelize, disciple, get out of your comfort zone. In addition to that, because God is sovereign, We should be the most loving and forgiving and patient people in all the world. I hate to say it, but when I first kind of started digging into the the sovereignty of God, I became pretty hammer-headed. Always wanted to talk about it and push it and think about it until the man who mentored me, John Jeffrey, I'm very thankful for him, he invested many, many, many years in my life. Uh, He just calmly but firmly rebuked me and said, stop being hammerheaded. Practice what you believe. Listen, if you believe that God is sovereign, you should be the kindest, most gracious, compassionate, forgiving, loving person this world has ever seen. That's what that doctrine should do for you. Sadly, what it does for a lot of us is it makes you hammerheaded. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. Stop being hammerheaded. You should be so loving and patient. Think about Joseph. Remember, his brothers were scared he was going to take it out on them. Dad's gone. Nothing to stop him from, you know what, kind of getting his revenge. Was Joseph bitter? He wasn't, was he? Why wasn't he bitter? Why was he filled with compassion towards them? What does he say? You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. The sovereignty of God turns his heart soft. Not hard, soft towards others. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. He commands us to bless those who curse us and to do good good to those who would wrong us. Again, that makes no sense unless God's sovereign. But because God is sovereign, we can bless those who curse us. We can love those who, who, who despise us. We can be patient. We can bear up. We can also see God's sovereignty in the everyday things of life and not get upset when uh, our plans get interrupted. But lastly, I'll wrap it up with this. We should trust him. We should trust him. Back to Psalm 115, verses 9 through 11. That's the response uh, to the sovereignty of God. Psalm 115, verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O Orangeville Baptist Church, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Trust in the Lord. Trust in him. Trust in him to accomplish his purposes. Trust in him to build his church. Trust in him to work through those things. You don't know how he's going to work through it. Trust, trust him with your future. Trust him to finish what he started. Trust him with all of it. Trust him to lead you and to guide you. 
Trust him that he will save you if you call upon him from your sins. Trust him he will redeem you. He will forgive you. He will sanctify you. He will justify you. He will glorify you. I read a a story this week of a dad. (laughs) uh, It got a pretty good laugh out of me. A dad who uh, gathered his children. He had a few kids. And he told them all to go to the bottom of the stairs. And then he sat at the top of the stairs. And he said to it, he's sitting up there at the top of the stairs, and again, his children are at the bottom of the stairs. And he said it's like 13, 14, 15 steps, something like that. And he says, he says to his kids, here's the challenge. If you can make it up those stairs without touching any of the staircase, not just the stairs, but the staircase, if you can make it from the bottom of those stairs up to me, I'll take you out for a milkshake. <laughs> what a nice dad, huh? Um, so his children, they're excited about it. You can kind of picture it, right? They have all these plans, these ideas. Uh, I forget what some of them were. One of them was something like uh, one of them's going to lay down on the stairs and the kids will walk on top of him. And the next one will lay down. You know, they're trying to figure it out. But again, they can't touch the staircase. They can't touch any of it. So that won't work. Uh, one of them comes up with the idea of I'll, just, I'll grab the handrails and I'll pull myself up, and I'll try and pull you guys with me. But again, you can't touch that, right? So they come up with all these ideas, and every time, it's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of mean. Uh, there's no way they can do that. Eventually, the kids start crying. They're bawling their eyes out. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, but finally, finally, through tears, the oldest one looks up at Dad with, with again, tears in her eyes. Dad, do you think maybe you could come down these stairs and pick us up and carry us back up there. And that's what the dad did. And that is a perfect picture of salvation. That God isn't just this sovereign, awesome God sitting at the top of the stairs saying to us peons, make it up those stairs. No, God the Father sent his son and he walked down those stairs and he picked us up. And he carried us up, not to a milkshake, (laughs) but to life everlasting. That's our sovereign God. I share that to say our God is sovereign, but he is more than sovereign. He is good. He is wise. He is loving. He is unchanging. He is altogether from himself. He is infinite. He has no ends. He knows everything. There's nothing he can't do. And in his love, his son left the glories of heaven, became a slave, died death for us, took the penalty of death for us, that by faith in his name, we might be delivered and rescued from our sin. God used his sovereignty for our good and for his glory. And so we turn around in light of that and we say, not to us, but to you, O God, be the praise and the glory. It's not about us. And as we think about uh, the Lord's Lord's Supper, uh, hopefully all of you have this on your seats or somewhere near you. Uh, Does anyone need one of these? Hopefully we're kind of getting used to doing it this way. I know it's still a little bit weird, a little bit different. Uh, but as, as we look at this, as we think about this, 
we are thinking about and we are dwelling upon uh, a few things. One thought I would just share again is that this is a picture of surrendering. This is a picture of saying, I'm, I'm done trying to control my life. I'm done trying to control all these things. I, I'm, I'm done being the one in charge. I humble myself and I'm trusting wholly and solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. That my life is not about me. This, that's that song we sing in Christ alone. It ends by saying, Jesus commands my destiny. That's what this is picturing. That Jesus commands our destiny. That he purchased your destiny through the cross. He owns you. He rules over you. So the, on the top is that wafer. Uh, and that's a picture of his body broken on the cross for our sin. And then there is the juice. The juice is a picture of Christ shed blood on the cross for us, how he purchased us, how he surrendered himself to us. What's our response to that? I surrender. I surrender. Uh, so this is a great picture of surrendering. It's also a great picture of sovereignty, as I said, uh, that God is, God is king and I am not. He owns me. I belong to him. I bring nothing, but I cling to this. I cling to Christ. I need to emphasize again that this does not save you. How crazy is that to think, huh? Man, if I drink this wafer and drink this juice, somehow God's happy with me and somehow saves me. No way. He saves you by faith and by faith alone. So if you're here this morning and, and you're unsure about your salvation, you're unsure about your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe you just know, you know you're still lost in your sins, separated from him, don't take this. Put this down. Humble yourself before him right now and cry out to him to save you, and he will save you. For us who believe, if Christ sacrificed his life for sin, we don't dare take this unless we are surrendering and humbling ourselves before him and crying out to him, oh Lord, search my heart. Search me for sin in my life. So if you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then right now in your life, you're harboring bitterness or anger or you have some kind of secret sin, that you just keep perpetually going after, don't take this. What you need to do is get on your hands and knees and confess that to God. And then take this. Again, there's that phrase in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 11 where it says, don't partake in this unworthily. Sometimes we take that too far because, quite honestly, none of us are worthy. By taking this, we're professing His worthiness, that He is worthy. And so I want you to, if you're ridden with guilt and sin and shame right now, take it to Christ. Take it to Christ. He will save you. He will cleanse you. He will renew you. And then take this with joy, knowing that by faith in Christ, my sin, my shame, my guilt is gone. It's gone. So I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll just, we'll, we'll do this together, the, the wafer and the juice. So if you haven't opened it yet, go ahead and open it. It's kind of tricky to do all this at once. Can you do more than one thing at a time? <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians 11 uh, says this. Verse 23, I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <laughs> 